bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. We have a very timely topic to cover today, namely tax return preparation for low-income housing tax credit partnerships and the funds who invest in them. Now, the initial federal filing due date for calendar partnerships is this coming March 15th. Now, that said, for a variety of reasons, many, if not nearly all, of these entities will be applying for an automatic extension of time to file their returns, an extension until September 15th. Now, we're discussing this topic today because several legislative and regulatory changes have taken effect over the last few years, and owners and investors in LIHTC and tax and bond finance properties need to be aware of these changes. They need to be aware of the consequences of the changes, and perhaps most importantly, the planning opportunities presented. That is, they at least need to be sure they're working with tax accountants that are aware of these changes, who understand their consequences, and can help you capitalize on the planning opportunities. Now, joining me today to discuss tax return preparation for long-commencing tax credit partnerships is my partner, Christina Apostolitis from Novogratz's Naples, Florida office. Christina provides tax, attest, forecasting, and property client services to owners and operators of low income housing tax credit and tax and bond finance properties, as well as doing a lot more than just that. She also provides the services to low income housing tax credit equity investors and fund managers. Now, today's discussion is going to be separated into two parts. First, the basics, and then second, the planning opportunities. And if time allows, I want to also get Christina's thoughts on other issues that she finds fund managers have or issues they don't realize they have until she points them out to them. Now, when I say the basics, the first part, I mean, we're going to start off with an overview of the recent changes that affect federal tax filings for low-income housing tax credit partnerships and their fund investors. And then we'll dive into various planning opportunities or strategies that exist that enable low-income housing tax credit partnerships to maximize their 10-year credits for investors. And we have a lot of interesting ground to cover today. So if you're ready, let's get started. Now, Christina, thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. Now, as I've mentioned, there are several statutory and regulatory guidance changes that have occurred over the last few years. Changes that equity fund managers and operators of tax credit property partnerships need to consider when filing their federal partnership returns this year. Now, some of these changes go back as far as 2015 with the Bipartisan Budget Act. Some of these changes were enacted as part of the COVID-19 relief during 2020. Still others originate with the COVID-related year-end legislation in 2020. That bill did bring some beneficial changes to depreciation lives of residential rental property, a change that was actually retroactive, as you know, to the effective date of the 2017 Republican tax bill. So those are three of the areas we want to make sure we cover. Then the fourth area arises from some COVID-19 IRS relief that was recently provided uh, that will affect 2020 tax returns. So let's start with the first of these four by going back to 2015 and the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015. That bill included a provision that changes how partnerships correct their returns. So, Christina, if you could explain to our listeners how those changes affect a partnership's ability to correct their returns, and then, most importantly for the listeners, the implications of that rule or that enacted statute for filing partnership returns this year. Thank you, Mike. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm very glad to join you today. Um, so, yeah, to start off with, first of all, um, the change that came about because of the BBA rules and changes, our partnership returns are no longer allowed to amend returns. And any changes on a partnership return, particularly our LIHTC partnerships, fall under 
under these changes are required to file any changes as an administrative adjustment request or an AAR. So this, why is this important? This is important because to our LIHTC partnerships and to the investors, any changes filed as a result of an AAR takes effect in the year that the AAR is filed. So for instance, this year, if we are doing a LIHTC partnership return for 2020 and we are reporting tax credits, um, say it's our first year tax credits that we're reporting and in 2020, we're also, this is the year that we're um, doing the cost certification as well. When we go to file that partnership tax return, we may or may not have the 8609s in hand. So best case scenario would be to have your 8609s in hand. However, we know that this is not always possible. I think you have to know the state agencies that you're working with. There's some things that the partnerships and general partners have under their control. They want to do, be doing everything that they can and be working with really good accountants to get those cost certifications done in time to give the state agency enough time to review and issue back the 8609s by the due date and the extended due date of the partnership return. However, if, if this doesn't happen in time, you know, you still want to make sure that you have done enough, the cost certification is complete, it's in the hands of the state agency to be able for the partnership to have enough sufficient reasonable cause to file that tax return with credits. Filing that tax return with credits allows allows the investors to claim credits for that year. Whereas now, because of these changes with the BBA requirements, if you were not to file that tax return with credits, if you didn't have your 8609s, or if you don't have reasonable cause, that when the credits are actually filed through an administrative adjustment request, those credits would take effect in the year that the AAR is filed, which might be 2022 or 2023. Some state agencies might take a while to get back your 8609s. Um, so you want to make sure that you're doing everything that you can. The general partner, the investor, the accountants want to be working together as a team um, to making sure that you get your cost certifications done in time to get those 8609s back. That is the best case scenario. Well, thank you for that summary. There are definitely arcane rules there for 163J. I would just say for our listeners, we don't expect you to be tracking all the 30%, 50%, the 2019s and 2020s and the rest. I think really big picture, uh, as Christina sort of noted, most light tech property partnerships ended up electing the real property trader business exception. And as a consequence, they didn't have the limitation on interest expense. There was an exception for rental real estate. However, as a consequence, under the act as originally enacted, if your property was already in service, you had to take depreciation over 40 years. And for newly placed service properties, you had a 30-year life. So there was a handful of clients where when they looked at their calculation, they'd have to go from 27 and a half years to 40. And they'd look at their interest expense limitations and to sort of decide, do I want to have this interest expense limitation or do I want to have this long depreciation lives? And depending upon your level of interest expense on your property, you know, you might choose not to make this election. So there was just a handful of clients that chose not to elect to be a real property trader business. And as a consequence, they ended up being subject to these rules. And those are the handful of properties where this is relevant. And that kind of brings me to the next Next question for Christina. As I mentioned how back in 2017, properties that elected to be a real property uh, trader business 
and accepted out of these rules, they had to switch from 27 and a half years to either 30 or 40 year, depending on when their property was placed in service. And at the time, no one thought that Congress had consciously said that if your property is already in service before 2018, then you have to switch from 27 and a half to 40. But if you're placed in service in 2018 or later, your life is 30 years instead of 27 and a half. But that's how the rules read. Well, at the end of last year, Congress created a, a rule that would fix that. They basically said that, you know, we're going to change the rule from 2017 and say that if you switch to a 40-year life, you didn't have to switch to 40-year life, you could switch to 30. And this new provision is going to be retroactive as if originally included in the 2017 bill. So that basically means that there are a large number of partnerships out there that have been depreciating their property over 40 years. And now they're finding that they didn't need to switch to 40 from 27 and a half. They could have switched to 30, but obviously they've already filed returns for a few years. So Christina, if you could, you know, maybe expand on my explanation of this change, this retroactive change, and then maybe discuss what you're seeing in terms of what clients are actually doing as we await IRS guidance on the matter. Yes. Like you said, Mike, although this is a good change for investors because going from 40 to 30 years, you know, results in a lower depreciation life and higher depreciation. The timing of this change and the lack of guidance on how to implement this change is causing a delay in light partnership tax returns. So what we're seeing is is that you know, partnership tax returns that are affected by this change may be prepared in a few different ways. Some partnership returns are being prepared without making any changes with respect to these rules, with respect to this change in these rules. So maybe they're just kind of waiting for further guidance and keeping just keeping the life as it was in prior years. Uh, we're also seeing that some partnership returns are being prepared by actually making the change from uh, 40 to 30 years and leaving it at that. Um, But we're also seeing partnership returns being prepared, making the change and actually catching up for the last two years where, you know, the the partnerships should have been using a 30-year life, but now the IRS has, you know, decided to fix the rule. So, um, you know, just kind of a takeaway for syndicators, you know, just to be aware of sort of the variety of, of what's out there and kind of looking ahead to be able to plan, you know, our syndicators have their own deadlines to their own investors and we'll need to provide information to them. So understanding sort of where um, and how partnership returns are being prepared to be able to plan ahead, to be able to provide timely information to their investors is going to be pretty important coming up in, in the next couple of weeks. It really seems like we're seeing four different options that at the property partnership level, obviously depending upon what the syndicator uh, is asking the property partnership uh, to do with respect to the return. One, as you noted, is just keep on the 40 years and wait until you get IRS guidance and make the change next year. Some client be sort of option one. Option two is waiting for the IRS guidance, extending the return and hoping that the IRS will give guidance uh, in the coming weeks so they can make the change in accordance with how the IRS is instructing them. And then for those making the change, there's sort of two approaches, broadly speaking. One is you switch to 30 years now, and then you look at the depreciation you should have taken the last few years and taking it all this year, this year being 2020, or 
you switch to 30 years and then there's this, and you end up amortizing your adjusted basis over the balance of the period. So if you're 10 years in, say the property has been placed in service 10 years ago and you're going from 40 to 30, you would take the 30 and say, okay, I'm 10 years in, so I have 20 years left. And then taking your adjusted basis and amortizing it over the remaining 20 years. We're definitely seeing a little bit of each of these sort of four categories. Um, and we keep waiting for the IRS to come out with the guidance so that we can you know, hop on board with how the IRS believes the change should be uh, implemented. Correct, Mike. Yeah, there's a, there's quite a bit of a new, you know, along with this and along with some of the COVID changes, you know, we're seeing um, a lot of these changes affect, you know, how the funds and, and what the tax benefits are ultimately to the investors. You know, one thing that we do at Novogratic is, you know, we can assist our syndicators in, in reviewing tax returns that come in just to make sure that, you know, they're implementing the right rules and the right guidelines. And especially as we get some further guidance from the IRS with respect to this 40-year to 30-year rule change, we are always available to assist our clients where needed. And that's yet another reason why so many partnerships are extending their returns between the, you know, the, the need to be able to correct the returns between now and September 15th without having to push the change forward into a later year because of the BBA rules and not even having guidance from the IRS and some of these other issues is all the more reason to be extending returns. So now uh, we've discussed some of the major changes that affect the local tax credit partnerships, you know, some of which were intended to be beneficial, but caused challenges when the rules come out at the end of the year and now you got to deal with them during the heart of busy season. Uh, let's uh, turn to the part of the discussion about tax strategies. And most significant, and I'm not sure it's gotten nearly the attention that's probably warranted, is the recent IRS guidance that affects the calculation of tax credits if a partnership places their property in service or otherwise the first year of the credit period begins in 2020. So Christina, if you could discuss the impact of this change, because it's a really beneficial change, it's important that developers and syndicators be very aware uh, of the change. Yes, Mike. The IRS issued very recently uh, notice 2021-12, which provided, again, some COVID-related relief that all our syndicators and investors should be aware of. The notice allows taxpayers that had trouble leasing up by December 31st the ability to include into qualified basis any units leased in the six-month period following the close of the year for the purposes of calculating the first-year credit. So this extension in time to lease up for the first year should be very carefully considered when making the election to either start your credit period or defer. So there are some partnerships that couldn't lease up in time. And on a, if that would happen any other year, you would likely defer the start of your credit period to avoid 15-year credits. But this year, the IRS is allowing some relief knowing that because of COVID, because of social distancing rules, lease up has not been how as it normally would be in a, in a normal year. So they're allowing this relief to extend the partnership's ability to lease up. So this is a great rule, much needed rule, because as you noted, leasing up uh, rental property uh, during COVID is a challenge. And one thing that is clear is if you place the property in service at the end of 2020 and you don't get the high enough qualified basis by the end of the year, that as long as you do lease up the unit sufficiently by June 30th, that you will not have to worry about two-thirds credits, which basically means you can elect to claim some credits in 2020 with it knowing that you're not going to be at risk of two-thirds credits in 2021 as long as you meet this June 30 deadline. What's less clear is whether or not those units lease up during the first six months of 2021 can be treated 
as at least up at the end of December, such that you would get an extra one month of credits uh, in 2020. Uh, I think a literal reading of the IRS rule would say you don't, but then there's other ways in which the ruling could be read that would say you do. So we are waiting for guidance from the IRS to clearly state whether or not you do or don't get to include it for purposes of the first year of the credit period, which is yet another reason <laughs> that some clients will be uh, extending their returns in order to wait any IRS guidance on this. So Christina, we do have some time left. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask you what other services you're providing to your loan closing tax credit partners or clients to best maximize tax credits and to accelerate tax losses such that you can drive up the amount of investor equity to close financing gaps in a tax credit partnership. Yes, Mike. One of the things we're always talking to our clients about is, and especially in this time when there's been recent changes in tax rules, um, this would be an excellent time for fund managers to revisit the models they're using to underwrite their LIHTC investments, as well as their own fund models. We're typically engaged to review and assist to implement changes in tax legislation and related guidance affecting the industry. And when we do that, we're always looking at changes they should be making to maximize their investors' benefits. We particularly will look at items affecting credits and credit delivery to make sure that their models are projecting accurate estimates, such estimates such as credit delivery on acquisition rehab projects, or you utilizing excess basis in projecting the first year credit. Another area for possible improvement is implementing changes to maximize losses to investors. Um, so some of the things that can be done is considering allocating soft costs to bonus eligible property. And this is important because as we know, the investors love credits, um, but they also like losses as well. And to the extent that you can have higher basis and bonus eligible property, you can get a first year bonus depreciation deduction for that property. Um, another area that we always suggest to our clients is considering having the partnerships do a cost seg study when it makes sense. Um, again, a cost segregation study is going to allow the partnership to take its costs and break it up into faster depreciable life property. So you can pull some of your costs into your five-year or 15-year property. And again, thereby providing higher losses and deductions to investors. We also might consider having the funds consider their amortization lives on fund level expenses, particularly discussing fund level fees that are um, acquired in the first year, such as acquisition fees for acquiring lower tiers and, and other such related fees and structuring the funds. Great. Thank you for that, Christina. And you know, certainly one of the keys, particularly since we do have bonus depreciation for a few more years where you can expense the cost of personal property and land improvements. And that applies not just for new construction, but also if you're acquiring an existing building, that we have been doing a lot more uh, cost segregation reports. And I'll include in today's show notes the contact information for Craig Staswick. Uh, we'll actually get him on as a guest in a future podcast to discuss cost segregation services so that you're really doing the, the best job you can in allocating your various costs among the various key categories, land, building, personal property, land improvements, uh, and other intangibles. Uh, and it's something that, you know, because of the potential value of accelerating tax losses, you want to make sure you have a well-documented and supported cost segregation study to support those expenses. So with that, one last question, Christina, you can't get away just yet. <laughs> so with your loans and tax equity fund clients, what are some issues that you would want to make sure that they're aware of? You know, what are a couple of situations that maybe 
some syndicators may not be aware of uh, that you would say, make sure you don't forget about this or that. So if you just give a couple, that'd be great. Yes, Mike. And, and you know, we, again, this is something we discuss with our clients, particularly in planning. And um, we want to make sure that they're always planning ahead. We, nobody really likes surprises. So a couple of things. The first is to be aware of state and local tax requirements and any issues that might arise uh, when a fund is disposing of any of its investment. And the second is to plan ahead for partner transfers. So when we talk about state and local tax issues, the equity tax credit funds may dispose of their interest in allied tech investments. And a lot of states may treat that disposition as if it was an actual disposition of rental property, which makes the transaction subject to transfer tax. So this might be something that you know people may not be aware of or may not have on their radar. So you have to be aware of, of these states and the states that treat the dispositions this way. Typically, they're called a, a transfer of a controlling interest. So you want to watch out for those. But a disposition can also uh, result in a gain. If there is uh, you know, proceeds on the sale, you want to think about negative capital accounts, any sort of situation might result in a gain, which would make the fund subject to withhold tax on behalf of its partners. So in, in certain states, not all states have withhold, withholding requirements, but many states do. So you want to make sure that you're aware of those. So whenever you're thinking, okay, you know, sometimes, you know, the funds get close to the end of its life, funds start disposing. You want to make sure that you have a good disposition team and the team is um, communicating um, with the accountants and just making sure that everybody's aware this is coming down the line to plan ahead for these potential tax issues that might arise. And it's also important as the disposition is, is happening, that if there are proceeds there, that, um, you know, any distributions to the partners, you know, that, that they're withholding um, some of that distribution to make sure that all state tax obligations are satisfied. And then the other um, item that can be planned for ahead of time is partner transfers. Um, so often within a fund, you can have multiple investors and throughout the life of the partnership, one or more of these investors might exit or sell its investment um, to another partner. And so we always tell our clients, you know, especially when, when these things happen, you know, don't wait until, you know, it's time to prepare the tax return, you know, making, there's a lot of things that can, can be done ahead of time. So we want to make sure that the incoming partners and all relevant parties are aware if there will be any 754, 7043 basis adjustments and all that can be planned for ahead of time. So we just, you know, if necessary, sometimes the adjustments involve having a fair market value of the partnership interest, you know, and here at Novogratic, we're lucky to have our GoVal group that can assist um, with these transactions and determining evaluation of partnership interest. Um, so again, it's best not to wait for the end, you know, to, to wait for the tax return to be prepared, um, reach out. And um, a lot of this can be handled ahead of time, which, you know, even the calculation and um, communicating that to the actual incoming partner as well, so that they know what to expect on their K-1. And um, just as a note, you know, because 2020 has provided so many changes already that we've discussed, Mike, but um, for 2020, there is an additional change to the way partnership returns are reporting 754 and 743 basis adjustments on the K-1s. So just kind of another thing to watch out for as you're receiving or preparing a return that has a 743 basis adjustment. Great. Thank you for that, uh, Christina. And I really appreciate you mentioning salt issues, state and local tax, because you'll notice several times in the course of the earlier discussion, we refer to federal income tax and we didn't use it universally because it, it gets to be a bit cumbersome, but it does uh, 
mean everything we were discussing before was with respect to federal income tax, then oftentimes, you know, the state will follow federal, but not always. And as you noted, uh, there are unique SALT uh, issues with tax credit partnerships. So I really want to just emphasize them in terms of A, you know, if you're transferring partnership interest, the potential for a transfer tax being owed. Uh, and that is something that we've obviously consulted with, with clients on portfolio sales and the rest to address their SALT issues, as well as, as you noted, that there's also the potential for state tax withholding on distributions and other uh, sales. So it's something that you also have to be aware of. And I mentioned earlier that we'll put Craig Staswick's contact information uh, in the show notes. We'll also put Risa Kareem uh, and Tom Bowman. Both uh, Risa and Tom do a lot of work with respect to SALT issues in local domestic tax credit uh, transfers and operations. There'll be a couple of more resources for you. So with that, I want to thank you, Christina, for joining. I want to ask you another question, <laughs> even though I could chat with you, ask you more questions a lot longer. Uh, and as I noted earlier, in addition to Craig's contact information, and Tom and Reese says, well, obviously have Christina's contact information as well. I do encourage you to reach out to her uh, with any questions that you have. And with that, I will note that next week's podcast, we're going to have uh, Novogratz's uh, partner, Brad Weinberg, uh, as a guest. And Brad is in our evaluation group. And he's going to discuss what public housing agencies or PHAs need to know about rent reasonableness. Now, many listeners know that HUD regulations require that public housing authorities perform a rent reasonableness determination in several situations. So in other words, a PHA has to determine whether the rent that would be paid to the owner of a assisted unit is reasonable rent in comparison to rent for other comparable unassisted units. So next week's podcast, we're going to include critical information as to when a PHA needs a rent reasonableness determination, how to develop and maintain a rent reasonableness process. Also, we'll discuss the interaction with the local tax credit uh, properties. And then we're going to discuss much more than that. So it's going to be a great podcast for obviously every (laughs) in any public housing authority, uh, as well as any property owner and investor in properties that do receive some level of HUD rental assistance. Uh, So you'll have a better sense as to how the rent reasonableness determination is made and when it needs to be made. And to be sure that you're notified as soon as that episode and future episodes are available, please do subscribe to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Simply go to www.novico.com slash podcast to stream the show directly and or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novico.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novico.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novico.com.